Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. We're going to go ahead and jump straight into the first part of our new series, Reset. How many of you know that in this world of technology that we live in, in the constant need for technology that we live in, there is usually somewhere throughout the day a hiccup with one of our devices, right? So I live in a world that is very, very, we'll say connected, right? So I am kind of like this technology, like I'm not great at it, hear me, I just really like it, right? So don't ask me to come fix things, that's not my forte. I just go, uh, I plug this into that and maybe it'll work, right? That's kind of how I do things and hopefully in the end things are, are working, right? So my cell phone, so I'm not like the biggest, like I don't have to have the latest and the greatest phone at all times, you know? Uh, every now and then I will only simply because my phone is now like five years old and it's not working and it's time for a new one, right? So I'm, I'm kind of the guy that hangs on the phones for a while. So currently right now, my phone is about uh, about two years old. And what happened, the reason I have a phone that new in the first place is my other phone literally just died, right? And you couldn't turn on, couldn't charge it. And it was just time to be done. So I had this phone and I'm thinking, cool, I'm going to have a newer phone. It's going to be great. Things are going to work really well. And here's what I found with this newer phone that I constantly have issues. Like it's just constant throughout the day. I'll try to load like if I, in the evenings, like I look at sports scores all the time. So I'll try to load ESPN and it'll take me like the better part of the night to load the page. I mean, this is not, not right. This isn't working well. The good thing is it's not a Samsung device. Otherwise I'd never get there. And so, um, just throwing that out there for George because he's over here mouthing Apple at me saying that's the problem. No, so you, you'd have this, 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 it was just a struggle from day to day, like, where, man, I can't load things, I can't load things. And so I find at the end of the day, Lauren will always go, have you tried resetting it? Well, no. Uh, and so what happens is I reset the phone, right? And then all of a sudden, oh, Things are working better. Things are back in order. Things are, are made or back to where they should be. And sometimes I go, you know what? Maybe I should update and back up and do like a hard reset and just like start fresh. And I did that just the other day and it was great. I'm like, oh, it's like, having, it's like having a new phone again. This is fantastic, right? So sometimes in our lives, we need a reset. Sometimes in our lives, we've been going in one direction for so long or doing things for so long in one way that we don't realize that Things aren't working the way they should. Things aren't, aren't firing the way they should. And the connections aren't happening how they should. And so we, we end up feeling like something's just not quite right. And it's almost as if we need to hit the reset button. We need to start over. We need to refresh uh, kind of how we're operating and how we are working. For us as people, there's, there's, there's a few things that I want to talk about over these next few weeks. And the first thing is, is we need to ask Jesus to reset our hearts, to reset our minds, and to reset our hands. And that's where we're going to go over the next few weeks. And today, we want to talk about resetting our hearts. And our hope is this, that, that this almost becomes a prayer throughout the day of just, Jesus, reset my heart. Reset my heart. Bring me back into alignment to where you want me to be to where my heart is focused on what you want me to focus on, to where my heart is pursuing what you want me to pursue and just asking God to just hit the reset button and bring things back to where they should be. 
I want to start by, by taking a look at a psalm uh, in Psalm 24, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 today is where we're going to study from and walk from. Uh, and I want to read this real quick, and then, and then we'll, we'll kind of lay the groundwork and the foundation that we're going to build off of for the rest of today. And it says this, if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to open your Bible. Uh, again, we will be in Psalm 24. It will be on the screen, but I encourage you, please uh, bring your Bible, read your Bible. I actually have mine here, and it didn't make it on stage with me. This looks really great right now. I'm like, I have have a Bible. You should use it too. Okay. So here's what it says in verse one. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Let me pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to study your word. God, we thank you that you gave us your word to lead us and to guide us, Lord, that your word is, is there for, for correcting and for teaching, Lord. It's there for, for helping us to grow, Lord, to be more like you. So today I pray that you anoint my lips and my words to speak what you would have me to say to your people today. We thank you for it. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's, before we jump in, we got to know kind of the background and understanding the purpose of this psalm, why it was written and all this. So we know this, that it was a psalm written by David, the great king of Israel. And, and we also know that a lot of times the psalms came out of a, a moment or they were a response to something that was taking place. And, and so you'll read all through the psalms and you'll find that David was a highly emotional person, right? And so if he was angry with his enemies, he would write a song and he would say some crazy, crazy things in his Psalms. There's actually one, and this may blow your mind, maybe you've never read this, where David prays in his Psalm, he says, oh Lord, dash their babies against the rocks. He's a highly emotional person, right? So, so David, David kind of responds somewhat, you know, quickly and all this kind of, I mean, it's crazy, right? So, so we read these things. So here we have David singing this psalm in response to a moment, to something taking place. And so we need to look further in to, to determine what is causing his response and his understanding in, in celebration of who God is and what it requires to be in the presence of God and what do we receive out of the presence of God and being in his holy place, right? And so what is triggering this moment. So in this moment, it's, it's believed by many theologians, but let me tell you this, that there's no hard, exact proof and evidence that this is exactly right, but this is the general thought that is widely accepted amongst theologians and those who study the Bible for a living, that this is the psalm that David had written and was singing as they returned the Ark of the Covenant back into the temple. So you're going, okay, they returned it back to the temple, which means that the Ark of the Covenant was gone, right? So then now we have to go further back. So 400 years prior to this moment is where it all begins. Moses and, and, and we, the, the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites and the Israelites are now set free. Pharaoh said, okay, you can get out of here. And, and so they start to leave and they go and they cross the Red Sea. And there's this huge miracle. And then they're at, the, at Mount Sinai and, and Moses goes up to the top of the mountain while the people do their thing down below. And then crazy pagans, right? You know, they're going, going nutso and all this stuff. And while on the mountain, God then gives Moses the 10 commandments, right? And so we know this, that Moses comes down and he's angry. And what does he do with the first batch? He throws them on the ground and breaks 
breaks him, right? And he's just like, oh, so he goes back up and God has to make him more. So what we have, then we go forward. Then God tells Moses in, in, in uh, Exodus 31, he says, you need to have some people make an ark. And what is an ark? It's not like the boat uh, that, that Noah was on, but this is a different kind of ark. This is like a really, really awesome box. And this box was made of acacia wood and gold, right? So it's this beautiful, ornate box. He says, and in that place, the Ten Commandments, place the tablets that you have, the second copy, you know, it's like, because you broke the first one. Remember that? I gave you those and you broke, okay. And if I'm Moses, I'm going, I know, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So he says, place those in there. And there's a few other like holy things. So like manna was in there, these different things, right? And, and what that was then to the people was a representation of the presence of God with the people of Israel. So they have this ark. And so there was rules and stipulations in place. You couldn't touch the ark without the punishment of death because it was holy. It was sacred. And so they had these long poles that were made and the priests would carry. So it was a very serious deal. And so now they have their, their major, major enemies, the Philistines. So the Philistines and the Israelites did not get along. In fact, they fought often. It would be like the cowboys and the giants. And I say the Philistines would be the giants because they had Goliath, right? So it only makes sense that they were the giants. Um, And in the end, what happens? The cowboys are God's people. And so they reign victorious. And the, okay, (laughs) there's no theological basis for any kind of football connection, but the cowboys play the giants today. And, uh... You're cheering for the Philistines? I'm just kidding. I set you up for failure. That's not even fair. Yeah. So you have the Philistines and you have the Israelites, right? And so they, they go back and forth in battle all the time. In fact, there are, are seven recorded like major battles. The most famous of all would be obviously David and Goliath. And so we know what happens there. And then David goes out and he wins. And so then fast forward now. There was another battle where the Israelites had lost 4,000 people. 4,000 people go and die in this battle. And you have to know that during this time, the Israelites are in one of their famous, uh, like, away from God moments, right? Where they are living uh, opposite to the law. They are living outside of the, the commands of the Lord. And so God is not exactly blessing them during this time, right? So they lose 4,000 men in this battle. So then one of them gets this brilliant idea. They said, wait a, wait a minute. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. We can go and take this and run out to the battlefield. And then God will be with us now because we took the Ark to the battlefield. So God is now going to honor us stepping out with the Ark of the Covenant. And then we will just win because God is going to be with us because we brought the Ark with us. And here's what happens though. When you're not being obedient to the Lord and you're going to use God as this genie in a bottle, as if he's some magic potion or spell that's going to wipe away all of your problems, you're in for a rude awakening. And God says, that is not how I work. In fact, the Bible tells us this, that God will not be mocked, right? And so essentially, he's looking at the Israelites and he's like, are you mocking me? Do you think you can live in this way and expect to just show up with the ark and I'm just going to go, oh, I'll, I'll, okay, fine. In this moment, I'm now going to start blessing you because all of a sudden you're using me for something, right? So, so understanding the heart behind the moment that they're going, okay, we can just use God and win. So here's what happens. So they take the ark and they go back to battle. And this time they lose 30,000 men in battle and the ark of the covenant. So this is where it gets really good. So they lose the ark of the covenant to the Philistines. And we're, we are condensing this down as quick as we possibly can, right? 
There's a whole lot to it. And they go and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it in, in the tent where they have their God, Dagon. And so they're like, yeah, we're going to put their God here across from our God. This is going to go really well for us, right? So then they come in the next morning and the statue of Dagon is laying on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. Coincidence? I think not. But they did. They thought it was purely coincidental. So what do they do? They stand it back up and they leave. And they, and they wait, and the next morning they come back in, and they find the statue of Dagon has now fallen again before the Ark of the Covenant. But this time, his arms and his head have broken off. And so they start going, uh-oh, this isn't good. Well, then things get a little crazier. So in that village where, where they had the Ark of the Covenant, the people start breaking out in sores, and they become infested with rats. Yeah. So it's like this crazy, so they're breaking out in these sores all over the place and they've got all of these rats. And so they go, you know what? We don't want it in our village anymore. We're going to let you guys have it. So they send it to another village and, and literally, I mean, almost instantaneously, the rats start coming in and people are breaking out in sores. So this, they do this for years. They're passing this thing around from village to village. Pass, it was like seven years they're passing this, this, the Ark of the Covenant around and finally they come to the point where they're like, take it away from us. We don't want this anymore. So here's what we have. Is now we're to the place where David is going to be returning this Ark of the Covenant back. The problem is, and what we find is is what's true for, for the Israelites and is true for us now, is that God created his people in his own image, right? He purposed them to love him. And he set them apart for his glory and equipped them for every good work. He established a covenant arrangement with them for them, whereby God would provide for them, protect them, and lead them into a deep-seated sort of fulfillment that they could never come up with on their own in exchange for. And you know what, you know what God asked for them in return? What he asked for, he said, I'm going to give you all of this. Here's what he asked for in return, to simply let, them, let him be their God. And through all of this, they had declined God and and said, you know, we'll use you when we need you. We'll use you in this moment. So here now David is celebrating the return. And so the Israelites never gave a wholehearted yes where they said, okay, God, fully. But they never gave a wholehearted no either. They kind of landed somewhere in the middle and basically gave a really strong maybe. I remember being in second grade and uh, I, I was not the coolest guy in class. In fact, I was new to my school in second grade. I'd gone to a little private school for the first two years. And so then I was like, I want to go, you know, I wanted to go to elementary school and and the public school. And really probably it was the fact that my parents are like, I don't want to pay for you to be in school anymore. You don't do well enough for us to pay for you to be in school, right? It was one of those. Uh, It may not be exactly true, but probably not far from the truth. And so, so I go in and I'm in second grade and I see this girl and she's like, she is so cute. I'm like, oh man alive, this little girl is cute, right? And so I remember, and what's, we ended up graduating high school together. So, I, you know, I've known this girl for, I knew her for years, you know, all through school and everything. But I remember in second grade, I would write her a note all the time that said, will you be my girlfriend? Check yes or no, right? And I'd put little check boxes and I would take it and I would like fold it up and like drop it on her desk and walk away because you can't have actual conversation in second grade with a girl, right? <laughs> That'd terrify you. You're like, I can't handle the anxiety of this exchange. So... So then I would get it back from her, and it was always like, hearts racing, what did she say? And she would always write in maybe and put in her own box, 
and check that. Which for her, thinking about it at this point, never ended the problem because I'm going, well, a maybe doesn't mean yes or no, which means I've got to ask again. So it was like weekly, I'm dropping her this no, and I'm weekly, I'm getting a maybe. And I'm thinking, eventually, she's got to give me a straight answer. It just goes on and on and on. And that's exactly what the Israelites had done with God. God would be like, check yes or no. And they'd go, maybe. And they'd check the box. And, and it was constant over and over and over. Like, well, some days, yeah, yeah, we like you today. We like you today. And then some days, like, actually, God, we're really good with, with, with serving the gods of our enemies. We're really good with, with following the, the ways of the pagans in the world that we live in here. And then they go, oh, but wait, we're, we're losing in battle and destruction is coming upon us and, and our world is fall apart. And we're like, oh, wait, we love you, God. And so that's where we have this whole process of the prophets and, and all of these different things that are going back and forth. And so here we have David saying, today we are bringing back the Ark of the Covenant. And there is this shift in this reset of his heart. So let's walk through this. All of that is the foundation. So let's read this passage one more time and then, and then walk through it again. In verse one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. The first thing that we see here in verses 1 and 2, when he says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established the waters, is this, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. It's as if David is, is having this, this recognition and this remembrance of who God is as they bring the ark back. God owns all things. He holds all things in the palm of his hand. The earth is his and everything in it, all the people in every aspect of it. He created it on the waters, which is a very poetic language, speaking back to Genesis and the understanding of creation. And he said, he, he created it, he formed it. God is sovereign. We tend to hold back a little bit on, on the sovereignty of God. We don't fully go all the way to the edge with it out of fear of speaking against free will, right? To say, well, if we go too strong on the sovereignty of God, that removes the free will aspect that we have as people and God giving us the ability to choose and make those choices because if ultimately God is fully and completely sovereign, then, then he's controlling us as puppets, right? So, but I, I feel that in, in fear of going too far with that, we don't go far enough, at times, as we speak about the sovereignty of God, and we do the same thing with so many other aspects in theology and doctrine, that we don't have time to go down that road today. But we're just going to speak about sovereignty of God for a moment. But, but we're fearful of, of saying, okay, well, you know, if God is in control, then, then this and this and this isn't, isn't in my ability. I can't do any of these things. I have to simply just, just get up and walk and hope that God picks me up and moves me throughout the course of my day, right? So understanding we have free will, and we'll speak about that in a moment, but, but the reality is, is when we begin to remove the sovereignty of God, then we begin to place too much in our own ability, and we begin to give ourselves credit for things that God ordained and set up and made happen. 
right? And so what we're seeing here is that, that David is going, no, no, don't miss the fact that God himself is sovereign and that we are in fact actually weak people, incapable of doing things on, on our own and, and, and incapable of making things happen apart from God. In fact, I would say this, Spurgeon says it this way, and if you know anything about Lauren and I, we probably read way too much Charles Spurgeon. But here's what he says. To be weak is to be strong, but to be strong is to be weak. It may seem a paradox, but we are never really so mighty as when our might has fled and never so truly weak as when we are filled with our own strength and are reckoning upon ease and security. Be not so bold. Take warning and look thou to a superior arm. Look thou to a superior arm. He's saying, don't, don't turn inwardly on your strength. So turn to the one who is sovereign. And actually, this came out of a sermon of this exact passage, actually, that he, he was speaking about. Well, just one of the verses anyways. But he, he's speaking about the fact that God being sovereign is superior to our own ability. And that if we will trust in a sovereign God and lean in on a sovereign God, we will find greater peace and joy and strength than we could ever find in trying to make it happen on our own. He's saying, lean into the creator of all things. Lean into a God who is, is the, the leader of all things. As a sovereign God, he is, is faithful. And here's what happens in our world is that God, at being the supreme being and, and being the creator of all things, he has set up certain natural laws and spiritual laws within our world that if we walk according to those laws and then we see the blessings come in, if we, if we go against those, then we find ourselves in, 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 in contrast with the Lord and what God is trying to do, right? And so as we walk according to the laws that God has set in place in the natural and in the spiritual, we begin to see the blessings take place. Place because God is faithful, right? So when we are faithful to the things that he has ordained and set up, right, we walk in step with the sovereignty of God. There in turn becomes this blessing. And so, so that's where we say we have free will. God has said, I have set these things up. I've ordained these things in a certain way. And now I allow you to choose you can choose to walk this way or you can choose to walk against it. And this is where we are with the Israelites, right? They have fought and fought back and forth with God where they go, okay, now we're going to be in step with you. No, we're going to be against you. We're going to be in step with you. No, we're going to step back from you. So it's this back and forth and they have this maybe and God is looking for that full yes. And so here we have David coming in with the Ark of the Covenant and he's thinking, finally, finally, God's presence will be restored in the temple. And he's saying, people, remember the sovereignty of God. Remember the sovereignty of God. Turn from the things that we have been living in. Turn from the wickedness that we have, have walked in and we have seen. And now let's walk in recognition of the sovereignty of God and in step with what he is doing. If you have children or nieces or nephews or you've been around children, right? That just kind of made it open for everybody intentionally because... I wrote it that way. I was like, if you have children, well, not everybody. If you have nieces, and well, if you've been around kids ever, um, you know that, that they naturally want to kick against the goads, so to speak, right? They don't want to do what we would deem as, as the natural, like, this is what you should do. We see things differently. This will protect you. This will keep you safe, right? And so they have this kind, of, this kind of back and forth. I remember I have a cousin named Robbie. Robbie will be 30 this year. But when Robbie was four years old, he was stubborn, 
as many children at four years old are, in fact, stubborn. And I remember one day we were at my grandparents' house, and we were all over there. All the cousins are hanging out. And, you know, So my Uncle Russ is there, who's Robbie's dad. And, and Robbie had been told by my Uncle Russ not to do something. And now if I could remember that, I would be freaking out because that was forever ago. And so he, here he is, and he's told, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And Robbie decides... I'm going to do this, right? Because he's a four-year-old stubborn child. And so he walks over and, and he begins to do this. And my Uncle Russ said, I told you not to do this. So then my Uncle Russ says, you sit in this chair. This is timeout. You're in timeout. You sit in this chair. And my cousin Robbie looked at him, four years old, bold, just I'm, a, I'm the man. And he goes, no, because he's four years old and he's stubborn and uh, my Uncle Russ had started walking away, which is, this is so great. He had started walking away, and he hears him go, no. I mean, he's a four-year-old. And he goes, yes, you will. And he picks him back up, sits him back in the seat, and says, now you stay in that seat. You're in timeout. He starts to walk away, and what does he say again? No. So <laughs> this literally goes on for some time where my Uncle Russ is just beyond flustered at this point and going, what is wrong with my child? You know, this whole four-year-old. And how many of you know that in the end, it did not work out well for Robbie? In the end, Robbie faced the punishment that was coming his way because he went against the, the rules that, that his father and, and the, the protection that he had set in place. And he said, now, when you go against this, there are consequences so that you learn to walk according to this. And so here we have, again, back to the Israel people where they have kicked against the rules and the laws that God had set in place and in motion to protect them from ultimate destruction and, and, and the loss of, of, of lives and bloodshed through battle and other things that have taken place within the Israelite world. And they've kicked against it and pushed against it and so David is saying, no, 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 recognize and remember that God is sovereign and his rules are in place not to, to restrict you or to rob you of freedom, but they are there to guide you and protect you. So we have to first recognize the sovereignty of God. His sovereignty isn't isn't to diminish us or to make us look as less than, although and the reality is we are less than God. I recognize that, understand that. But it is there for our protection and for our guidance. It is out of his love for us, not out of a, a hatred or a desire to see us suffer or to feel restricted, but it is there to give us the greatest life we could ever have. So God's sovereignty is a good thing. It's a good thing. So then David asks the question. He says, okay, so we have this sovereign God, right? And if we want to be in the presence of this sovereign God, this most holy God, he says, what do we have to do? And so here's what number two, it says, God wants pure hearts. Number two, God wants pure hearts. And here's the, here's the verse that says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust God or who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Yes, the one who does trust God, right? Yeah, 
who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So the mountain here would be Zion. And Zion ultimately becomes the name of Jerusalem and where the temple would have sat. And so when they say the mountain, it at one point was actually a mountain. And then through culture and time, you know, things just, they start calling things something else, right? And it just takes on that name. That's essentially what happened, right? Within the culture. And so Jerusalem is now Zion. That's where the temple sits. And so when we talk about the mountain, like who can be in the in mountain of Zion in the presence of God? Who can be in the temple who can be in the holy place? And so in the temple, we see that there was, you, you have this, this whole kind of progression. You have you know, the, the outer court, you have the gates, and then you go through the holy place. Then you have the most holy place, or as it's also called, the holy of holies. And this would be in the Old Testament in the temple set up. And, and to enter into the most holy place, to enter into the holy of holies, it wasn't just a free-for-all that anybody had access to that at any certain time, if they went through the ritual, first of all, you had to be the high priest. You, you, it wasn't just open and available to anybody. But then the process to be allowed into the most holy place was serious. It was not just a, an easy thing like, hey, well, first of all, wash your hands and don't touch anything, right? It wasn't like, no, it was a very serious deal where the high priest, he had to wear the certain garments. He had to wear the right garments. And then there had to be a sacrifice to atone for his sins. And then there was a goat that they placed. They said, all of the sins are on this goat and we're sending it out to the wilderness. And it was the scapegoat that would go out. And then after that, because it was so bloody and so messy, there was a clean bath that had to happen. So there was another bath. And then there's another sacrifice that has to be made. This is all to go into the doors, okay? This is to get into the most holy place, into the presence of God, right? So then there's another, I mean, it is a long process that doesn't, doesn't just happen quickly. So, so the one time that they get to go into the most holy place, it is a, a seriously heavy ritual to make sure that the person is clean, to make sure that the heart is clean, and to make, for, make sure that all sin had been atoned for. Because in the most holy place, sin cannot cohabitate with God. And so if there was any ounce of sin, there would be death because the price had to be paid. So it was a serious process to enter into the most holy place. And so David is asking this question, and some, some theologians say that it was possibly that he asked this question, and then the priest would respond back, the one with clean hands and a pure heart. And, and so you see they're, they're stating essentially the process. But here's what we have today, is that when Jesus was on the cross and when he dies, there was this veil, this huge thick curtain that separated everybody else from the most holy place. And what happened in that moment is that that veil was torn and it was broken open, which symbolized to us now the freedom of access into the holy of holies, right? The access to the presence of the Lord. And so we find here then that, that now that we have freedom into that place, it was because the sacrifice had been made, right? That Jesus atoned for our sins. And so through that, we now have access into the clean hands and the pure heart without the long drawn out process of, of sacrifice after sacrifice and, and bath after bath and the right garments and the right clothes. No, it is simply through relationship with Jesus that we have access now into the holy place. And so David is saying, he, he said, it's those who trust fully in the Lord and they don't trust in idols they don't serve false gods, but they put God at the forefront. They trust the Lord alone. 
In the struggle that we have in our world, that most often our struggle is trusting in money. And now hear me, hear me when I say this. Money is not the issue, right? It ends up becoming a heart issue. I know some wonderful, God-fearing men and women that, that love the Lord dearly who have money. And, and even some who have a lot of money, right? So, but if it's, if that's not the issue. Money is not the issue. It's when we begin to trust in money over the Lord. And if our trust is found in what we have in our bank account or, or the things that we possess, all of a sudden now we are trusting in an idol, and that God is now secondary. We have placed that, that thing or that person, that relationship, if our trust is in a person, right, and, and say, okay, I, if, as long as they're okay, I'm okay, right? If we begin to do that, then all of a sudden we have placed them above God and we have removed God from being number one and being at the forefront of our, our, our heart and, and where it needs to be. And God is saying, if that is the case, you need a reset. If that's the case, then Jesus reset my heart. Let me come back into alignment with what you have for me so that you are at the forefront, that all of these other things that you have blessed me with, that you have allowed me to have, are simply secondary to my trust in you, to my trust in you. It's easy to become overwhelmed with financial stress. It's easy to become overwhelmed with relational stress. And it's easy to to find ourselves trusting in people and trusting in money or trusting in things and trusting in what I have here and what I have and this and that to where we go. As long as I have these things, you know what? I'm doing okay. But the reality is it should be as long as I have Jesus, nothing else matters. As long as I have Jesus, nothing else matters. When we begin to place our trust elsewhere, it's almost a slap in the face to God and saying, I don't need you because I have created for myself security. I have created for myself a safety net. I've created for myself all that is needed to sustain me here. And God says, you need me in a greater way than you've ever known because only I can provide the security for eternity and understanding our trust should be in Christ alone. Money can run out. Relationships can end. The education you lean on doesn't open every door. But when everything else fades away, there's still Jesus. We need to reset our hearts and shift our hearts fully to him. So who can enter into the depths of the presence of God? Who can, who has the, you know, who, the one who has the clean hands and the pure heart? Psalm 15, one and two says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? This is the almost kind of the same thing. He's saying to hear, hear me, who may live on your holy mountain? In verse two, it says, the one who, whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. that almost seems unobtainable to go, uh, my walk is not blameless. Uh, I've not always uh, spoke truth from my heart. I've not always done what is righteous. Here's what I love. The third thing today is that God gives blessings to the righteous. And and we're going to walk through this. Verse five and six says, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. 
such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. What's this blessing? What's the blessing we're going to receive? It's easy for us to immediately jump to, oh, financial provision. We're going to be blessed with a bigger house. We're going to be blessed with a new job. We're going to be blessed with a new car. We're going to be blessed with, with the right friends and relationships and all of those things. You know what? Sure, those are secondary because the reality is, is that the, the, the blessings that we receive is, is written right here. He says they will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. What does that word vindication mean? to be made justified, to be justified, to receive the righteousness of God. One of the coolest things that God has ever done for us is that through salvation, we receive and take on the righteousness of Christ. That, in and of itself, is the greatest blessing we could ever hope to receive. It is the greatest blessing we could ever walk in. It is the greatest blessing we could ever share with anybody else. It is the greatest blessing known to man. And that is the salvation that comes through Christ. It's the one who says, God, I put you first. I trust in you alone. I give you a wholehearted yes, not a maybe, not, not, not a, a, a we'll see if we can get to it, but a wholehearted yes saying, Father, I turn to you. I submit to you. I fully turn my heart to you. And he says, and through this, you will be vindicated. You will receive the righteousness of Christ. You will be covered and clothed in the goodness of who Christ is. I think too often we lose sight of how great of a blessing it is to have salvation. It's easy to do because we get caught up in all the other things that we see around us that we don't have, that we forget what we do have. And what we do have is the salvation of Jesus Christ. And it is there for us It is there to be given to us, for us to simply receive and take. I love what David said, and it's not in your notes. In Psalm 51, and he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because he understood something, that it's not not our salvation. We don't have, we don't take ownership of it. It is, it is God giving salvation, right? And, and to be, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And too often we forget the greatness of the blessing of salvation. And that's when we say, Jesus, reset my heart. Reset my heart. I'll invite the worship team to join me. He says, reset my heart. I love that, that David is, is so often the writer of the psalm that you go through. This was an imperfect man. This was a man that had issues beyond issues beyond issues, and he compounded them. It's like he would make one mistake and then he would try to cover it with another mistake and then he would try to cover it with another mistake and then try to co- and then finally a prophet would have to come and call him out, right? This is David, the man who later was called a man after God's own heart. 
which is so comforting and encouraging to us because we go, even if you've had the worst of the worst, if you've done far worse things than you could think possible or imagine, you got to remember, David was a man who was married, who saw another woman that was married and then calls her in. He sleeps with her. She's pregnant. He finds out. So then he has her husband murdered to try to cover for this. You want to talk about a messed up person. David made mistakes. He made mistakes and then he compounded the mistakes, right? And in all of that yet, there is still grace and forgiveness that God extends to him as David turns and says, oh God. Psalm 51 was written after his, his recognition of his failure and his repentance of, of what he did with Bathsheba. And that's where he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And it was that remembrance that, that the salvation I have is all that I need. The salvation that God has given me is all that I could ever hope for. And there are times in our lives when we need to stop and reflect and say, oh God, let me find joy in your salvation again. Let let me remember the greatest blessing in my life. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.